Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 98 of the podcast, the topic is free speech on social media. Our guest is Bill Ottman, CEO and co-founder of Minds. It's really important to me to get the idea out there that, you know, we're not a political, like, conservative social network. It's literally not what we are. In this conversation, we talk about how we can solve social media censorship issues and violations of free speech, but still filter out illegal content. What technologies are key to disrupting social network change for good? Censorship in the digital age and platform control among big tech and how it is achieved are at times to the detriment of privacy. We discuss extractive media, surveillance issues in closed media, and the emergence of alt-media and crypto-social media that respect privacy and tries to reward creators. All right, so so Bill, it's good good to have you. So My first question is simply this. Uh, you must, like you said, you, you're on podcasts and stuff. So there's there's a lot of stuff out there already. What what do you think? Do you have any ideas of, uh, I don't know, great questions or things that could be a little bit unique angles? And then other than that, I just want to spend the time getting to know you a little bit so that when we, you know, do shoot, that it flows pretty freely. And I know like uh, fair questions, unfair questions, that kind of thing. Yeah. So. You know, I'm not dogmatic in the way that I approach censorship. Um, What we're really focusing on is having a a data-driven approach towards understanding what actually works. The vast majority of the evidence that we've gathered so far clearly shows that censorship exacerbates the problems that it's trying to prevent. Um, And we're actually going to be launching a study soon. And so, you know, and I think that the First Amendment generally um, is um, evidence in in a certain, to to a certain degree about a, a system for speech that, works that, that creates a generally healthy society. So, um, and, you know, recently we had Clarence Thomas come out sort of supporting the common carrier approach for social platforms. And I think that there's many, many good arguments for that. So, and, you know, there, there are risks, obviously, um, you know, there's risks with all new technologies and we just kind of have to weigh those costs and benefits. Social media has like dominated the last 10 years of the internet experience. And it has arguably perhaps almost destroyed the internet. That would be one argument. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we're moving into a new stage where there there are crackdowns and it's complicated, but arguably social media has just been let alone because people haven't fully understood it. Would you agree with that characterization? Um, not completely. Um, I don't think that 
I think that that's sort of a meme going around that social media has destroyed the internet. I think that there's certainly some consequences to it, but social media is, is what, I mean, even starting from email or AOL and instant messenger, I mean, people are generally doing the same thing that they've always been doing on the internet, which is communicating and sharing information. And it's become much more high quality and immediate. And, you know, the, the numbers of people you can reach are, are more significant, more people are on the internet. But I don't think that social media has destroyed the internet at all. I think that social media is just the modern sort of manifestation of the internet with the most advanced tools. So, you know, in terms of like disinformation, um, all that kind of stuff, that's always been, that's always been there. It's definitely able to be amplified more, but at the same time, positive messages are able to be amplified more as well. And I think that what, what, what's ultimately dangerous is when the largest communication platforms on the planet are, have no checks and balances against them. We, we have no act. We don't understand the algorithms that are at work. So what is truly dangerous and what is destroying the internet is in our opinion, closed source uh, surveillance, social media, that type of media, which is what YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat, clubhouse, all of them are closed source, non-transparent, proprietary surveillance social media. That is absolutely a threat to the planet. Now, on the other side, alternative social media, crypto social media, open source social media that respects your privacy, that tries to reward creators, that has cooperative infrastructure and transparency with algorithms and all of these types of core components. You know, that's how the that's how the internet started. I mean, software always used to be transparent and then, you know, Microsoft and Apple started taking over and blah blah blah. You know the rest of the story, but point being I think that social media is not one thing. There's a there's two there's principled social media and then there's social media that just extracts values value from the from the users no that ma- that makes a lot of sense um how do you feel about the censorship debate overall i mean you've been subjected to uh i mean i don't know if it, if it's censorship let me let me rephrase it H- how do you feel about uh the fact that there are rules uh of the the big tech providers uh, networks are starting to implement rules and are starting to sort of have demands for their apps. And I, I, I believe uh, Google was one that you, you were in the media with where, where they sent some letter to you and you changed some uh, functionality. How do you feel generally about the ability and the fact that they are exercising, you know, their platform control in, in that way? I think that they're 
incredibly misguided with their standards and their and their policies. They they're, they're totally inconsistent. I mean, um, you know, when we fir- when we first had an issue with Google, they suspended us for like some half naked person in a photo and it even had like a blur over it for NSFW. And then I appealed, like I kept trying to appeal. And then finally I appealed saying, uh, Hey guys, have you ever searched for porn on Twitter? Because guess what? Twitter is full of porn and Twitter allows porn publicly has stated that porn is totally in line with their policy. And yet you're not banning Twitter from Google play. And then we got let back on the next week. So, you know, there, there's all kinds of subjective uh, decisions being made about, you know, what post is uh, against their, no one knows what their policy is. No one knows. There's no clear, there's no clarity. They don't have a strategy. They don't, they say that they're trying to, to minimize hate speech, but they, the data in the studies show that their policies are amplifying hate speech because they're causing all the people that they're banning are just going to, you know, the dark web and forums and other, other sites. And they're getting their, their toxic beliefs are being reinforced because they think that Twitter is this big evil, you know, machine that is biased and as opposed to actually driving the conversation and depolarizing they're they're for, further polarizing and they do have inconsistent terms i mean if you look at the debate between jack dorsey and tim pool on rogan's podcast i mean they were embarrassed they couldn't they had no answer for 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 tim's arguments about an a, a, basically every every case he brought up of 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 the censorship and so if we know that censorship can cause psychological effects which which push people deeper into radicalization and we also know cuz we partnered with Daryl Davis who is a deradicalization expert he's converted hundreds of members from the KKK by befriending them you know that's psychology at work that you how you destroy your enemies by making your enemies your friend that's just a fact of humanity so i'm not saying that no one deserves to be punished on social media i mean if you're going around trolling and you know harassing people and making violent threats then obviously something needs to be done but what daryl proves is that every human no matter how horrible there is a path to transformation and and this is what we're fixating on with with our study we believe that over the next decade we're going to be able to empirically prove that our policy a first amendment based policy will result in a drastically higher rate of deradicalization than mainstream social media because and their rate of deradicalization will probably be close to zero because they ban all the all of those users 
So there's there will be no de-radicalization that they are helping to fuel. All that they're doing is pushing the problem under the rug and saying, hey, rest of the internet, you deal with it. That's just unacceptable. And they have billions of dollars to be understanding this data in this research. And they're just unwilling to deal with the problem. So, um, and it seems just mostly for like PR purposes. I, 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 because there's plenty of smart people at these companies who, un, who, who are aware of this type of information. Let's go back a bit. Why did you start Minds? And has anything changed since you started it? Um, I, I think the original idea was that, you know, there, there, we need a global social network that actually represents the users. And, you know, that's why it's called Minds, because it's like, that's what it is. It's the minds of the network. And, you know, we knew from the start that that needed to be open source. There was no open source. No major social network is open source. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. Open source is critical to, you know, our global infrastructure. So, you know, you look at Wikipedia, it happened with the encyclopedia. It's happening with Bitcoin and crypto. It happened with Linux. All the core systems must be open source. Facebook, Google, all of them are riding on, they're, they're riding on the coattails of open source. And, you know, they don't open source their main apps. They open source some like backend tools and frameworks, but they don't, you know, they know the game that they're playing. And it's very, uh, it, it's a very unbalanced relationship. So, you know, yeah, that the, the, the original idea is that we, no one deserves the power that they have. And, you know, we need a much more open source decentralized infrastructure. I'm curious. I want to pick up on the open source part because clearly open source, and I know open source well, it has a, a number of uh, implications for, for how things can be run. But, but, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody uh, will fully understand, for example, how the algorithms work. What are you thinking? This is a growing, but perhaps not growing fast enough debate about can algorithms be regulated? And I guess in social media, what that would mean is Let's say, let's just pick LinkedIn to take one mm -hmm. media platform. Like, sure. I don't know right now. It's pretty obvious, like, just right now, I seems that they had limited my search for some reason. That's probably very simple. Like, it, and they even said, you have reached your monthly limit or something. So in some cases, they do explain at least why certain things happen. But what they don't do is explain why am I seeing certain things in my feed? And this right. is, you know, obviously a very big debate. Are you saying that you are able to, or at least in future, would be interested in and able to disclose in some not insignificant manner why things are showing up in people's feeds? So that would be a very tangible thing. Oh, yeah, that is foundational. I mean, well, all of our algorithms are 100% transparent and open source. So anyone can go and look at our algorithms and we put, we have documentation about our algorithms and our default algo is 
just chronological because I think that 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 you know for newsfeed, and I'm not saying we're not like anti-algorithm because that would make no sense. But one of the great betrayals of Facebook was when they, you know, you, the reach on Facebook, you, you used to get like pretty significant reach. You know, if a million people followed you, you would, you could really drive traffic and you could get lots of engagement. Now you're only reaching like a few percent of your own followers by default organically. And that's the same on LinkedIn and you know, there are reasons for that. You know, their argument is, oh, we, we want to show you stuff that is more relevant to you, even though they really just want to feed you ads and, you know, control the stream of information. Yeah. But- I, to be honest, that's actually something that I personally have discovered in the very few media that I have spent significant time, LinkedIn just being one of them. That's why I'm using that as an example. So for example, I have spent 10 years building a network on LinkedIn. And Mm -hmm. I thought with some value. And then two things happen. One, before I managed to download enough, I have some of the email addresses. They pulled the rug out of that. Now, obviously that wasn't their choice. It was a GDPR related choice. But anyway, it is a major shift um, and the consequences, at least for me, were, you know, some investment that I made suddenly was lost. Mm. Then when you point out that I think I'm publishing and sharing with all the people that I have sort of carefully curated, and in fact, I'm doing none of the sort, mm. that feels like a betrayal. I, I would agree with you. The language is, is, it's is right. It's a decade of your life. It's a lot of time and energy. I mean, it's a full-time job. Like the the, the energy that w- people put into these platforms is not to be underestimated. It's a, it's a major commitment and they, uh, you know, it's a service and, you know, yeah, sure. They have the, the right to, you know, change their service to a certain degree. But, you know, when, when you spend a decade building up a following, paying for even paying, you know, for advertising to build up that following, and then your following becomes useless. I mean, that's like a complete rug pull of what the product is. And you're in, and, and, and so it, it, it's false advertising arguably um, because they brought everyone under this notion that it was a, you know, a global commons and that you were going to be able to reach the people that you connected with. And then it, it changed. And that is just not ethical. I actually, on this one, want to follow you. I don't think I follow you for every network, for every, you know, like, it's not a generically true statement for me, but I'm curious. I'm more curious, obviously, what, what you think, but just in, to dive down to this case, so I fully mm-hmm. understand your thinking, it would seem to me that the argument could be made that what you know if you are a paid client it's different and i have been in this case a paid client for some years and then i'm not like you know it's not the problem whether i'm paying 15 dollars or not or 50 or whatever i've also been premium enterprise client i've been have all kinds of relationships with that particular company but but what you're right about is that it, it doesn't really matter because the value proposition was really never whether you paid 20 dollars a month the point is you're contributing so much more value because all of the names that I am interacting with, all of the people that I might maybe even brought into the platform, they are interacting and getting jobs and you know, they're using it for whatever the main business model is of any given 
platform. So, so that I follow you there, but but I guess it's not generically true for every platform, right? That they they always have some value proposition, I guess. But you also can't hold people to, like, if you were to hold Facebook to what uh, was initially thought when this platform was created out of Harvard, you know, much, much later. I mean, that's yeah, also I, I don't want I, I don't want to confuse the what, what I'm saying. I'm not saying that platforms shouldn't be able to change or grow right. or, you know, develop their product. And but core the core value proposition of Facebook, what and, and social networks in general is certainly you come, you post content, people subscribe to you, they get your content. Yeah. That's the that that's the uh the contract essentially. That's what you're expecting. I'm going to build up a following on YouTube so that when people subscribe to me they can see my content. Yeah. If they the users should be in control of 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 what they're seeing. And yeah. so so otherwise we're we're dealing with network TV. Yeah, I agree. That's that's a very fair that's a very fair point. It's it's actually back to network TV because there is an editor now involved. The algorithm is an editor, or I mean, there are editors right. too. There's plenty of editors. There's actually more editors than in network TV. It's just that you don't see them, and you have no idea what they're doing. And I also just want to make sure that it's it's clear. Like, there are so many great things that have come out of mainstream social media. I mean, I'm not um, naive to think that they haven't done important things for the world. Um, and, you know, there's certainly so many brilliant designers and developers who work at these companies and, you know, they've made breakthroughs. Like, and, and that's what's actually fascinating to me is that if you, if you compare all the social media apps, LinkedIn included, Snapchat, TikTok, Facebook, they're all becoming the same app. Everything's the same. You have stories, you have a news feed, you have video, you have private messages with very, very slight, you, you know, differences now. So, so that, but to me, and, and we're, you know, the functionality of our app, not including all the monetization and crypto stuff that we have, but is, is actually similar because I think that we acknowledge that humanity is almost like coalescing on you know, this is what we like. This is how, this is the best way to communicate. And that's why every app is doing the same thing. Um, look, this is, this can go in many directions. I want you to talk a little bit about uh, Clubhouse, mostly because I know so little about it. I was, I've been on it for a week just because mm -hmm. somebody invited me to do something tonight. And I've, you know, I, I was out with my kids one morning and another friend just managed to somehow just get me on his feed. I just thought I was picking up the phone, but suddenly I was on live on stage in some other discussion, which happened to be okay because it's a nice friend and mm -hmm. it was a good discussion. But I was there with like a, a big crane in the background and this and that. Anyway, it is a little bit of a different social media. What, what, I mean, apart from the fact that it is proprietary and you have no idea what's going on behind it, what are your thoughts about it? Yeah. So I think structurally, from, from a foundational point of view, 
it is the same. It's a surveillance closed source social media app. Um, you know, they've limited the functionality in a unique way, which was really smart and is working. And I think that, you know, now in the same way that like Snapchat started in like a very focused way and, yeah. and then everybody sort of copied Snapchat with the stories. Um, but, and now everyone's copying Clubhouse and they're all going to add their, their audio rooms. And, but Clubhouse, I would predict will eventually expand its functionality. And, um, but you know, I, yeah, it's, it's interesting how it's, it's, it's a new interesting medium that people are coalescing. Okay. We like this form of communication sometimes. And, but I don't, there's, there's nothing about it that is revolutionary to me. It's not because the only thing that is actual more so evolution of social media. Like it's a slight feature evolution, but it's not, it's not changing the, it's not going to change the world. The only thing that in my opinion that can change the world at this point with regards to the top networks is a uh, foundational shift in terms of transparency, privacy, uh, and the, dynamic of the relationship between the corporation and the user. And what exactly do you have in mind? I guess I want to, I, I want to also talk a little bit about, uh, I guess your network and other networks that are trying to do things differently because w one part of the debate is, you know, who then is left on these networks and, you know, <laughs> arguably some people would say, well, you know, it is the people that are dis, uh, affected or not happy with the existing network. So it's a very specific selection of people. But the other challenge, I guess, all of these alternative social media have is to get to a meaningful user traction. And that is a difficult question for anybody. And I, the reason I brought up Clubhouse is that, you know, for all of its limitations, the limitations are working. Why is it that no good social media has reached critical mass yet? And critical mass meaning like worldwide sort of like, mm -hmm. no, you know, renown. Well, I think some is starting to. So I would argue that like Signal, for instance, um, is, you know, that it's like a peer-to-peer, -peer, well, it's an open source encrypted messaging app, which is, it has, you know, many millions of users and is very it is is basically mainstream it's been it's been trending on uh, app stores and you know that's uh that's positive um sure. and that so so we do have some that are entering in and you know we're doing all right like we've got like four million users and growing very steadily and you know not like massive explosion but like honestly part of the reason that that becomes harder is be because we're not willing to spy on people in order to grow, like the way that Clubhouse is growing is through surveillance. So, you know, the recommendation engines, the, ref I mean, they, they have a very good, you know, referral system that, you know, isn't all necessarily about surveillance, but like the way that the recommendations are driven 
is most likely through like a pretty sophisticated surveillance system. Um, and we've been very hesitant to like use a lot of the growth hacks that, you know, Facebook is famous for. And because growing in that way, you know, you, you get dependent upon growing that way. And so for us, it's much more sustainable to stick to the principles and like just not abuse anybody in the process of growing so that we're not burning any bridges. And if it takes longer, it takes longer. But so where do you draw the line then, uh, um, Bill, in terms of what is ethical growth? Because you you say you don't you want to do it transparently and you don't want to mm-hmm. survey you know do do surveillance. But in in you are also dependent on user growth. So what is acceptable right. strategy then for you to acquire these users? It's just consent, you know. So if you if one of the the areas we've really had endless debates, which we still haven't reached a conclusion on is like, you know, the very simple idea of uh, importing a contact address book, you know, that simple idea is arguably a betrayal of not, not necessarily your privacy. If you're importing your contact book, but all of your friends, you know, your friends whose phone numbers you're uploading didn't necessarily say that you could do that, that you could give their phone number to Facebook. Now, I think that there's a way to make it work where, but, but it's, you know, that's sort of an extreme look at it, but, you know, realistically, but, but the contact importer is a massive growth engine. So understanding how to harness people's contacts in a way that is 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 ta- is getting their consent and potentially the consent of everyone who is you know maybe you give consent for your phone number to be uploaded by all of your friends so that so you you tell minds hey my friends can find me with my phone number and I, I, I'm, I'm, here's my phone number. Like it's okay. So, but, but we, 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 we don't have this figured out, which is why we haven't rolled it out. And you know, that, that's a big, a big deal. Um, but you know, I, I, it, it's though the way that our company works is, you know, we'll have hours and hours of debates about, about these topics as opposed to just give me the data. Ah, like, you know, growth at all costs type type system. And, you know, you can become a sustainable business without, you know, insane growth. Like if you have healthy growth with paying customers, you can, you can grow, you know, steady and, and in a healthy way. I guess that brings me to your business model. What, what, how are you monetizing this company? So, a couple of different ways. Um, we okay. So Minds Plus is our main membership. It's like five to seven bucks a month, depending on if you pay, you know, monthly or for the year. And what Minds Plus is is 
access to an exclusive feed and also the ability to post into that feed. And if you, the people who get high engagement in that feed, we do a rev share with. So we take 25% of our Minds Plus revenue and we proportionally share it with the members who are creating the best content in it. So the, the analogy would be if Netflix, if you could upload a film to Netflix as a paying member, and if your film performed well that month, you get paid out at the end of the month. That's what Minds Plus is, but it's for all multimedia. It's for, it's for videos, images, blogs, writing, anything. Um, so it's a rev share system. And, you know, we have thousands of, of members of Minds Plus. So, and we also have Minds Pro, which is more, you know, advanced kind of customized uh, channel tools and uh, some, some extra monetization perks and just for more uh, large-scale creators. And then we also have our token system, which is Ethereum-based. And so the only way to advertise on Minds is with tokens. Um, one token is pegged to a thousand views. So we reward tokens every day. And, you know, we, there's also a, a, a market for tokens and um, we accept tokens for boost. And so these are non-surveillance based ads. These are just, you know, boosted posts that get distributed to the community sort of in everybody's newsfeed every 20 posts. And so we also get revenue from that. And yeah, so the, the, but, but the Minds Plus, a, a, a monthly membership is what almost nobody in social media is doing. You know, Twitter is now talking about rolling out uh, a, a membership, but the whole, the whole thing of, of traditional social media has been, you know, quote unquote free, but it, you know, we monetize your data and all, and all that kind of stuff. So what we're, we're taking a totally different approach. Um, you know, for, for the free account on mines gets mo almost everything. I mean, there's just happens to be one exclusive feed that you don't get access to. And also with mines plus you can turn off, uh, boosts or ads and, you know, there's a, there's a couple of other little perks in there. So yeah, it's, um, it's more of like a, a recurring sustainable membership model. One thing I do want to cover is uh, is the future of social media. So you are obviously have a, a big stake in it. Um, what wh what do you think will happen over the next decade? We've talked about Section Two Thirty. There's free hmm. speech issues. There's you know new networks popping up. Uh, I guess a little bit surprising actually because you know it, it was sort of I think pronounced that social media was what, what it what it was for a little while here. Uh, people mm -hmm. thought Twitter was the end of it, uh, but of course it wasn't. Um, are we going to see many, many more spins on this? Or, or is it your contention that, like you said initially in this conversation, that we have sort of coalesced around the model that works and well, more or less this is the model? I think we've coalesced around functionality. Yeah. Um, not necessarily the, mo the, the model, but the features have, have been come upon. Now, in terms of the infrastructure in the back end, 
Like, you know, that's all sort of existing within a centralized model. So the, you know, the server architecture is centralized. So, you know, what we've also done is brought in Web3, which is like Ethereum and sort of the decentralized crypto model. And so, so I think that's really where we're moving. Um, you know, we're seeing, I, I think that what we're, we're going to see sort of an interwoven dual infrastructure system where you have centralized and decentralized sort of threaded together. So people can still use, like on Minds, that's very much what we are. We're hybrid. So we have a centralized infrastructure, but we also have a decentralized infrastructure. So when you log in, you can connect your Web3 wallet for like MetaMask and, you know, your Ethereum address. And that is what seems to be growing is like the new identity layer in web three. So you have web two, which is centralized web three decentralized. And, you know, with your web three wallet, you can uh, tip people, you know, there couldn't potentially be an on-chain social graph that emerges with your NFTs that are connected to your wallet address. And, um, you know, and then we also have other sort of decentralized systems like uh, more federated systems like activity pub and matrix we're, we're we're about to roll out like a huge uh, matrix integration which is a um end-to-end -end encrypted messaging protocol um so i think yeah we're gonna we're gonna start to see more peer-to-peer -peer based tools where users are in full control over their data and money and content. And it's much more, you know, there's a cool phrase that kind of has circulates in the crypto world uh, called uh, can't be evil, which is sort of a play on, you know, Google says don't be evil, or they used to say that. Um, and the crypto phrases can't be evil. So you sort of engineer it so that the company literally is unable to, uh, you know, to to take your data without your consent. That's what's cool about you know crypto keys is that you know you have your you know your keys, your your crypto, and or your uh, digital assets. So, yeah. So, Bill, a lot of people look at alternative social media and they think you guys are not taking your responsibility seriously. There has been a lot of frankly, incendiary debate on, on these networks. Um, I'm not going to have you defend everybody else's network, but I'm sure this critique has been leveled against mines as well. What, what do you say to that line of argument? Well, I completely agree that certain alternative social networks are doing it wrong. Um, I think that some are very polarizing in terms of pretty clear biased political ideology being spouted from the companies themselves. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't need to name names. I think we all know who they are. Um, but, you know, we've put very cl clear effort into not politicizing, you know, we're, we're not political figures the you know who the 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 management of of minds and we our initial growth phase was actually large you know back in like 2015 
was largely progressive, like privacy advocates. And, you know, certain a huge contingent from from the left. And then what you saw happen over the years, like with Trump elected, you know, free speech issues sort of flaring up a lot more conservatives getting interested in, in free speech in free speech which is pretty fascinating because, you know, traditionally it's always been liberals who were like the champions of free speech. And I think some certainly still are, but, um, you know, that inversion kind of happened. And so that was just a political dynamic that, that occurred. And, and, and so we, we really, uh, are cognizant of, of not polarizing and, and being open to, and, and seeking out, uh, people from both sides of the political spectrum. So that's number one. And then in terms of responsibility, like sort of what I was alluding to in the beginning of the conversation, I feel massive responsibility for, you know, the impact of the the content and the conversation. However, I, the data that I've found and that, we published a, a bunch of it actually shows that to take, to truly take on the responsibility means to make sure that the conversation continues. If you kill the conversation, then you are pushing responsibility. You're actually um, not taking responsibility because you're 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 banning the conversation. So and again, like I obviously anything illegal is not okay at all. But have that moment where, you know, there's you know, there are bad people who you know, through our work with Daryl, we we're, we're, we're understanding that they need someone to talk to. And so if we can help that process happen, I I really don't see what the alternative is. I don't know what world we expect we're moving into, but guess what? It is not more responsible to ban more of humanity and create this fissure in the internet. That is not, like, I'm not saying that there aren't potentially consequences from, from, having the speech occurring, but it seems pretty clear to us that there's more consequences from shutting down the conversation. So, and I honestly want someone to present me with evidence that, that proves that wrong. I cannot find it. So you said though, you spoke as if there is a clear delineation between what's legal and illegal. And as if that is very clear and easy mm. to do. So I, I I think I understand what you're saying with, I guess, even the fact that you might have to work with psychologists uh, mm. and, and, you know, you're sort of, you are a bit of a psychologist. The system is a psychologist because you're an outlet for things that exist there. But right. what I'm, I'm questioning more is there is a boundary past which there are true consequences that you, with various surveillance systems, at least that's the standard that people are putting on Twitter and other networks, right? And maybe that's misguided on the government's or anybody else's side, but we somehow collectively seem to, we want free speech, but we want somebody 
the government, the police, the networks, someone to look over our shoulder and tell us there are some really bad people planning clearly illegal stuff that leads to death and destruction. Sure. And we want to find a way to discover that. So there's surely we even have for that. you we must have that. be. We 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 have all the reporting tools. We we have this basically the same types of reporting tools. We but but we take a first amendment based approach. Where where are you from? Uh, nationality in Nor- Norway and now, you know, living in the U.S. I'm okay, kind of so, dual. Yeah. So I think that, you know, in terms of what is legal, you're right, there is some gray area, but generally speaking, it's much more consistent and enforceable to, you know, take the First Amendment approach with, honestly, the only exceptions that we really make are like, you know, extreme harassment and like threats and, you know, malicious spam is not like covered by the First Amendment, but we're obviously going to ban all of that kind of stuff as well. So, you know, other countries have different laws, but we're, I don't think that it really makes sense to play that game because when you start saying, okay, I'm going to have a different, like, this is what Twitter does, you know, they have a, di- there's a different policy in Pakistan and every country. Twitter has a different policy. And we're, we're just not going to do that because then why not just have a, um, a China version? I mean, you know, but, but that, that's also why it makes no sense. I mean, so Google, Google won't go into China. You know, they want to, but they won't for some reason because but it's odd. It's like they'll censor YouTube, but they won't go into China. It's like, why not just, where are your standards? It doesn't seem like you have any. So, you know, we made the, what we will do is because of the, you know, the marketplace is essentially monopolized. You know, we did remove some functionality from the Google Play version of the app just to, you know, so that like NSFW content was, you know, not accessible. But, you know, our core policy didn't change. We just sort of changed some feature flags. Um, and that's an unfortunate thing to have to do. You can still get the full version of Android directly, you know, at minds.com slash mobile. But yeah, I just, I think consistency in principles and like in order to have a, to prove a hypothesis, you have to have like a control. So if our hypothesis is that over the next 10 years that we can re- we can uh, have a higher rate of de-radicalization than mainstream social networks, we have to have a consistent policy that we're actually trying to prove that with. You know? Yeah, I see that. Can yeah. you just explain uh, for the benefit of myself and the users, the NSFW content was taken down. So what explicitly did Google say in their communication with you and what exactly did you do that improves this situation can you just explain it in like plain terms yeah i'll try it's not necessarily the most simple topic but so nsfw is not safe for work you know this could be anything from uh uh you know nudity or profanity or you know this kind of stuff so we have blurs on the site which you have to specifically opt into if you want to see that stuff which 
you know, we, we feel is really important. We don't want people seeing things that they don't want to see. It's your experience. You should have full control over what you're seeing, but you should also have access to the full spectrum if you, if you do want to see it. So they just were finding, um, you know, they were finding that stuff. And so we, we actually turned off comments and restrict and just like turned off search on Google play. And, and we turned off the NSFW feature flag. Because so, so the app is much more, you know, the play version is, you know, you can still like have your newsfeed and, you know, message and do all that stuff with the people that you follow. But like discoverability is like massively limited on Google Play now. Um, and that's fine. People can have a dumbed down version of the app if they want. And if they want the full version, they can come directly to us. And but, you know, the app store market situation is, is a total mess. All right. Very cool. Yeah, have thanks. A, have a great rest of the day. You too. Take care. You have just listened to episode 98 of the Futurized podcast with host Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was free speech on social media. In this conversation, we talked about how we can solve social media censorship issues and violations of free speech, but still filter out illegal content. What technologies are key to disrupting social network change for good and the dangers of censorship in the digital age? My takeaway is that free speech is a contentious issue on social media these days. The balance between free speech and censorship is a delicate one and one that is never fully resolved. Whether it is legal, ethical or commercial deliberations behind it, free speech is an ideal not and reality online. What constitutes hate speech? What good is censorship if questionable speech always finds an outlet? What is a fair business model for the future of social media? Is it time to truly break up big tech? What would we get instead? Many questions there. On Futurized, we are not there to conclude, only to ask questions. There will be more questions in the time ahead. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 71, How to Fix Fake News, episode 51, The Future of Peer-to-Peer, or episode 29, On the Future of Computational Media. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.